Smith, although a strong man, was no match for the captain who soon overpowered him. "'Ha! You villain, have I got you!' cried he as he almost throttled the man. "'Get up now and come along peaceably. If you don't, I'll knock your brains out with the butt of my gun.' He permitted Black Jim to rise as he spoke, but held him fast by the collar, having previously taken from him his knife and rifle. Black Jim did not open his lips, but the scowl on his visage showed that feelings of deadly hatred burned in his bosom. Meanwhile, the girl had recovered and now approached. "'Ah, please, sir,' she said. "'Let him off. Sure, I don't mind the blow. It's done me no harm, won't you now?' "'Let him off!' exclaimed the captain violently. "'No, my good girl. If he has not murdered you, he has at any rate murdered one human being that I know of, and if I can, I'll bring him to justice.' Kate, for it was she, started at this reply and looked earnestly at the man who hung his head, and for the first time showed symptoms of a softer feeling. "'Ah, it's true, I see, and all hope is gone. If he'd commit a murder, he'd tell a lie, too.' I thought he spoke truth when he said Nellie was alive, but... The girl turned as she spoke and left the spot hurriedly, while the captain took out his pocket handkerchief and began to fasten the arms of his prisoner behind him. But Black Jim was not to be secured without a struggle. Despair lent him energy and power. Darting forward, he endeavored to throw his captor down, and partially succeeded. But Captain Bunting's spirit was fully roused and, like most powerful men whose dispositions are habitually mild and peaceful, he was in a blaze of uncontrollable passion. For some time Black Jim writhed like a serpent in the strong grasp of his antagonist, and once or twice it seemed as if he would succeed in freeing himself, but the captain's hands had been trained for years to grasp and hold on with vice-like tenacity, and no efforts could disengage them. The two men swayed to and fro in their efforts, no sound escaping them, save an occasional gasp for breath as they put forth renewed energy in the deadly struggle. At last, Black Jim began to give way. He was forced down on one knee, then he fell heavily on his side, and the captain placed his knee on his chest. Just then a peculiar hiss was heard behind them, and the captain, looking back, observed that a third party had come upon the scene. The grizzly bear, which has been described as watching Captain Bunting at dinner, had left its former position on the brow of the precipice, and, whether from motives of curiosity or by accident, we will not presume to say, had followed the captain's track. It now stood regarding the two men with an uncommonly ferocious aspect. Its indignation may perhaps be accounted for by the fact that they stood in the only path by which it could advance a precipice on one side and a thicket on the other rendering the passage difficult or impossible grizzlies are noted for their objection to turn out of their way for man or beast so the combatants no sooner beheld the ferocious-looking animal than they sprang up seized their weapons and fired together at their common enemy bruin shook his head uttered a savage growl and charged it seemed as if black jim had missed altogether not to be wondered at considering the circumstances and the mixture of shot and slugs from the blunderbuss was little more hurtful than a shower of hail to the thick-skinned monarch of these western hills. Be this as it may, the two men were compelled to turn and flee for their lives. Black Jim, being the nimbler of the two, was soon out of sight among the rocks of the precipices, 
and, we may remark in passing, he did not again make his appearance. Inwardly thanking the bear for its timely appearance, he ran at top speed into the mountains and hid himself among those wild, lonely recesses that are visited but rarely by man or beast. Captain Bunting endeavored to save himself by darting up the face of the precipice on his left, but the foothold was bad, and the bear proved about as nimble as himself, compelling him to leap down again and make for the nearest tree. In doing so, he tripped over a fallen branch and fell with stunning violence to the ground. He rose, however, instantly, and grasping the lower limb of a small oak, drew himself with some difficulty up among the branches. The bear came thundering on and reached the tree a few seconds later. It made several abortive efforts to ascend, and then, sitting down at the foot, it looked up, grinning and growling horribly in disappointed rage. The captain had dropped the blunderbuss in his fall, and now, with deep regret and not a little anxiety, found himself unarmed and a prisoner. True, his long knife was still in its place, but he was too well aware of the strength and ferocity of the grizzly bear, from hearsay and now from ocular demonstration, to entertain the idea of acting on the offensive with such a weapon. The sun sank behind the mountain peaks, and the shades of night began to fall upon the landscape. And still did Captain Bunting and the bear sit, the one at the top and the other at the foot of the oak tree, looking at each other. As darkness came on, the form of the bear became indistinct and shadowy, and the captain's eyes waxed heavy from constant staring and fatigue, so that at length Bruin seemed to the alarmed fancy of the treed mariner to be twice the size of an elephant. At last the darkness became so deep that its form mingled with the shadows on the ground, and for some time the uncertainty as to its actual presence kept the prisoner wakeful. But soon his eyes began to close, despite his utmost efforts to keep them open, and for two hours he endured an agonizing struggle with sleep, compared to which his previous struggle with Black Jim was mere child's play. He tried every possible position among the branches in the hope of finding one in which he might indulge in sleep without the risk of falling, but no such position was to be found. The limbs of the tree were too small and too far apart. At last, however, he did find a spot to lie down on, and with a sigh of relief lay back to indulge in repose. Alas! The spot was a myth. He merely dreamed it. The next moment he dropped like a huge overripe pear to the ground. Fortunately, a bush broke the violence of his fall, and springing up with a cry of consternation, he rushed towards the tree, expecting each instant to feel the terrible hug of his ursine enemy. The very marrow in his backbone seemed to shrink, for he fancied that he actually felt the dreaded claws sinking into his flesh. In his haste he missed the branch and fell violently forward, scratching himself terribly among the bushes. Again he rose, and a cold perspiration broke out upon him as he uttered an involuntary howl of terror, and once more leaped up at the limb of the oak, which he could just barely see. He caught it. Despair nerved him, and in another moment he was safe and panting violently among the branches. We need scarcely say that this little episode gave his feelings such a tremendous shock that his tendency to sleep was thoroughly banished. But another and a better result flowed from it. The involuntary hubbub created by his yells and crashing falls reached listening and not far distant ears. 
During their evening meal that day, Ned Sinton and his comrades had speculated pretty freely, and somewhat jocularly, on the probable result of the captain's hunting expedition, expressing opinions regarding the powers of the blunderbuss, which it was a shame, Larry O'Neill said, to spake behind its back. But as night drew on, they conversed more seriously, and when darkness had fairly set in, they became anxious. "'It's quite clear that something's wrong,' cried Ned Sinton, entering the tent hastily. "'We must up and search for him. The captain's not the man to lose his way with a compass in his pocket and so many landmarks round him.' All the party rose at once and began to buckle on belts and arm, while eagerly suggesting plans of search. "'Who can make a torch?' inquired Ned. "'Here's one ready-made to hand,' cried Maxton, seizing a huge pine knot and lighting it. "'Someone must stay behind to look after our things. The newcomers who camp beside us today are not used to mining life and don't sufficiently know the terrors of lynch law. Do you stop, Maxton. Now then, the rest of you, come along.' Ned issued from the tent as he spoke and walked at a rapid pace along the track leading up to the valley, followed closely by Tom Collins, Larry O'Neill and Bill Jones, all of whom were armed with rifles, revolvers, and bowie knives. For a long time they walked on in silence, guided by the faint light of the stars, until they came to the flat rock which had formed the captain's dinner table. Here they called a halt in order to discuss the probability of their lost comrade having gone up the ravine. The question was soon settled by Larry, who discovered a few crumbs of the biscuit lying on the rock and footprints leading up the ravine for the captain-worthy man had stepped recklessly into the little stream when he went to fill his pannikin, and his wet feet left a distinct track behind him for some distance. "'He can't have gone far up such a wild place as this,' said Tom Collins, while they moved cautiously along. "'Kindle the torch, Ned. It will light us on our way and be a guide to the captain if he's within sight.' "'It will enlighten enemies, too, if any are within range,' replied Ned, hesitating. "'Oh, no fear,' rejoined Tom. "'Our greatest enemy is darkness. "'Here, Jones, hand me your matchbox.' In a few seconds the torch flared, casting a broad glare of light on their path as they advanced, examining the foot of precipices. "'Give a shout, Larry,' said Ned. Larry obeyed, and all listened intently, but, save the echo from the wild cliffs, no reply was heard. Had the captain been wide awake at the time, he would doubtless have heard the friendly shout, but his ears were dull from prolonged watching. It was thought needless to repeat the cry, so the party resumed their search with anxious forebodings in their hearts, though their lips were silent. They had not proceeded far, however, when the noise occasioned by the captain's fall from the tree, as already described, struck upon their ears. "'Look! What's that?' exclaimed Larry, with a look of mingled surprise and superstitious fear. For a minute the party seemed transformed into statues, as each listened intently to the mysterious sounds. "'They come from the other side of the point ahead,' remarked Ned in a whisper. "'Light another torch, Larry, and come on, quick!' Ned led the way at a run, holding one of the torches high above his head, and in a few minutes passed round the point above referred to. The glare of his torch immediately swept far ahead and struck with gladsome beam on the now wakeful eye of the captain, who instantly greeted it with one of his own peculiarly powerful and eminently nautical roars. "'Haroo!' yelled Larry in reply, dashing forward at full speed. "'Here we are all right, Captain, coming to the rescue. 
Don't give in, Captain Pitchin, to the blackguards. Look out for the grizzly bear, roared the captain as his friends advanced at a run, waving their torches encouragingly. The whole party came to a dead halt on this unexpected caution, and each cocked his piece as they looked first into the gloom beyond, and then at each other, in surprise and perplexity. Hello? Captain? Where are you? shouted Ned. And where's the bear? added Tom Collins. Right in front of you, replied the captain, about fifty yards on. The bear's at the bottom of the tree, and I'm at top of it. Come on and fire together, but aim low, do you hear? Aye, aye, sir, replied Bill Jones, as if he were answering a command on shipboard, while he advanced boldly in the direction indicated. The others were abreast of him instantly. Ned and Larry, holding the torches high in their left hands as they approached, step by step, with rifles ready for instant use. "'Have a care!' cried the captain. "'I see him. He seems to be crouching to make a rush.' This caused another halt, but as no rush was made, the party continued to advance, very slowly. "'Oh, if you would only show yourself!' said Larry, in a suppressed tone of exasperation at being kept so long in nervous expectation. "'I see him!' cried Ned, taking aim. The rest of the party cried, "'Where?' aimed in the same direction, and the whole fired a volley, the result of which was that Captain Bunting fell a second time to the ground, crashing through the branches with a terrible noise, and alighting heavily at the foot of the tree. To the surprise of all, he instantly jumped up, and seizing Ned and Tom as they came up, shook them warmly by the hand. "'Ugh! Are you not shocked, Captain?' exclaimed Larry. "'Not a bit. Not even hurt.' answered the captain, laughing. The fact was that Captain Bunting, in his anxiety to escape being accidentally shot by his comrades, had climbed to the utmost possible height among the tender top branches of the oak. When the volley was fired, he lost his balance, fell through the tree, the under branches of which happily broke his fall, and finally alighted on the back of the grizzly bear itself, which lay extended and quite dead on the ground. "'Fie, we've polished him off for once,' cried Larry, in the excess of his triumph as he stood looking at the fallen bear. "'Fie, we've done nothing of the sort,' retorted Tom Collins, who was examining the carcass. "'It's been dead for hours, and is quite cold. Every bullet is missed, too, for the shot that settled him is on the side next the ground. So much for hasty shooting.' Had Bruin been alive when we fired, I'm inclined to think that some of us would not be alive now. Now that's what I was sure of, remarked Bill Jones. What I says is this. When you're going aloft to reef topsails, don't be in a hurry. It's a no manner of use trying to shove on the wind. If you've got a thing to do, do it slow, slow and sure. If you haven't got a thing to do, of course you can't do it. But if you have, don't be in a hurry, I says. Bill Jones' maxim is undoubtedly a good one. Not a scratch had the bear received from any one of the party. The bullet of Black Jim had laid him low. Although hurriedly aimed, it had reached the animal's heart and all the time that Captain Bunting was struggling to overcome his irresistible tendency to sleep, Poor Bruin was lying a helpless and lifeless body at the foot of the oak tree.
End of chapter 14